1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us today. I recently spoke with Angela Krager about her new book, Life Atomic, a history of radioisotopes in science and medicine. This came out in 2013 with the University of Chicago Press. This is an absolutely must-read book for anybody who works on the history of science, and certainly for anybody who's interested in the history of the nuclear and or the history of the modern life sciences. It looks at a history of radioisotopes, using the history of the use of radioisotopes to shed light on, as Krager puts it, the consequences of the physicists' war for post-war biology and medicine. The first half of the book traces the establishment of a system for producing and consuming radioisotopes, and that's about six chapters. The second half of the book focuses on some representative users and uses of radioisotope technology and brings us into some really fascinating case studies in the history of modern medicine, in molecular biology it's a really, really interesting story. So with that, I will um, leave you to the interview itself. But I'll just say that this is the kind of book that is absolutely humbling for a historian to read because it's based on such extensive research and archival work. It's really an amazing product. It's an amazing accomplishment. And it's also a really fascinating read. So I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. And I also hope you have a chance to go out and find yourself a copy of the book and read it because it really, is an astounding work in the history of science, and it was really an honor to talk with Angela about it. We're here today to talk with Angela Krager about her new book, Life Atomic, a history of radioisotopes in science and medicine. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Angela. I'm really delighted to be talking with you today about what was a fabulous book, and I'm really happy that you have uh, were able to make the time. So thanks so much and welcome. My pleasure. So, Angela, could you start us off as is traditional for the channel by saying a little bit about your background and specifically, how did you come to the history of the modern life sciences and looking at the U.S. in particular? Well, um, I was something of
0: a late bloomer in history of science. I, um, as a as a young person in high school, I was passionately interested in the humanities. uh, And I also really loved the sciences. And I remember even at that time being fascinated that uh, chemists had figured out how to understand life in molecular terms. Uh, biochemistry and molecular biology already captivated me. And when I went to college, that was what I wanted to major in, but I was also very interested in a liberal arts education. So I double majored in biochemistry and English, and I was always passionately engaged in both and couldn't quite figure out Um, which to pursue. And so uh, as I was nearing graduation, I was trying to decide what to apply to grad school in, and I I decided I should pursue my love of the sciences as far as it would take me. And so I um, went uh, for a PhD in biochemistry at Berkeley, uh, knowing also that Berkeley had a lot of other great departments uh, and that I could keep my other interests alive. And after I passed generals, I was kind of sneaking out of the lab and sitting in on various courses trying to figure out um, if there was anything more interdisciplinary that I might be able to do. In my fourth year at Berkeley, someone recommended a history of biology course to me. Um, It was taught not by the resident historian of biology, who is a man named named Jack Lesh, but by somebody who was a replacement, Eugene Cedidino. And the course was so exciting to me that at the end of the very first day, I thought, this is what I want to do with my life. So um, it wasn't clear how to go from being almost done with a PhD in biochemistry to becoming a historian of science, but um, I managed to do so by getting an NSF postdoc and retraining in history of science, and it's just been my passion ever since.
1: That's great. I love I love stories like that, Those stories of passion and finding what you love to do and, and becoming successful at it. So, yay. Yes. So the book that we're talking about today looks at a history of radioisotopes, and it uses radioisotopes, as you put it so wonderfully here, as as historical tracers. So they're both used at one part of the story as tracers by the people that we're going to be talking about, and you yourself use them as kind of historical tracers that guide readers through a story of how they were used in scientific research and in clinical applications, how they circulated, and how they transformed approaches to all sorts of bodies, including human bodies, animal bodies, ecological bodies, institutional bodies, and other kinds of bodies. So it's an extraordinarily rich book, um, and we'll talk a, a lot about the individual details of the chapters. But in the meantime, what brought you to this topic in particular? Can you situate this book within your larger research trajectory? How did you get here and how did you decide to write a book-length monograph about this particular topic?
0: That is a really good question. Um, and I should preface this by saying that several years ago when I gave a presentation on one of the book chapters at the International Society for the History, Philosophy, and Social Studies of Biology, otherwise known as Ishka um someone who does history of genetics came up to me and said that in the I guess late 80s her PhD advisor at Penn who was Thomas Hughes had encouraged her to write a PhD dissertation on the Atomic Energy Commission's radioisotope distribution program but she decided to write on corn genetics instead so uh, it was in this sense I can honestly say this was a book that was just waiting to be written and I happened to come come you know come across the materials um, the way I became aware of it is – I mean, first of all, I should say that my approach to history of science is that I'm extremely interested in the role of materials, things – Um, kind of what happens on the lab bench in the production of knowledge I like to think about writing a history of biology from the bench up and uh, in that sense I was already in my work looking at the role of various kinds of instruments and another historian of biology uh, asked me to contribute to a volume on biophysics instruments and said well do you want to do something on the scintillation counter and I said I think I'd actually rather do it on radioisotopes themselves which are um, the things that are detected by scintillation counters Uh, and And so he said, "Okay," and I began to just do a little bit of work in the library. And it turned out one of the main sources for me was the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. I hadn't realized that the availability of radioisotopes was directly connected to the Manhattan Project and to the infrastructure which had been built to manufacture the first atomic weapons. So that intrigued me, that edited volume in the end, never materialized, but I couldn't let the project go once I had seen that there was an interesting story to be told about where radioisotopes came from. So then several years later, I began to work on that, and by then I had also realized um, that the decommissioning of many papers related to the Department of Energy as part of President Clinton's uh, task force uh, related to the advisory um, committee on Human Radiation Experiments meant that there would be a lot of documentary materials available to me. So, in that sense, even though it was a book just waiting to be written, I also um, lighted on the topic at just the right moment to take advantage of those sources. Great.
1: So, let's get into the book itself. So, but first things first, before we look at the structure of the book and get into the, di- the different individual chapters, For listeners who may not be familiar with the term or may not be familiar with um, the vocabulary, can you briefly explain um, for those listeners what is a radioisotope? Yes, this is a really good question. And I should say
0: also that radioisotope is... The original name that was used for these substances once they were identified as such, but the term radionuclide is also used, and some people feel like it's a more precise term. I don't use the term radionuclide just for consistency in the book. I use radioisotope because that's what most of my historical actors um, were talking about, but if you're familiar with radionuclides, we are talking about the same thing. So a radioisotope or a radionuclide is a variant of a chemical element that has a different, um, usually a different number of uh, neutrons And um, in the case of radioactive elements, they're unstable. And so over time, uh, they transmute either into the same element with a different um, weight or into a different element altogether. And they give off either, you know, often particles and uh, radiation. And because of this, they can be detected using various kinds of instrument. You can detect the radiation. And the thing about radioisotopes is that... um, they have a there's a lot of variation because the the amount of time it takes for half of an amount of a radioisotope to decay which is called the half-life can vary from a very short amount of time a few minutes to thousands of years and similarly the energy of the radiation given off can be very low level or very high level and this is one of the reasons that although you know irradiating um you know biological organisms is not great, there are biological effects to that and damaging effects, the actual hazards of being exposed to radioisotopes depend very much not only on the amount of the radioisotope, but on these other parameters, the half-life of that radioisotope and the very particular energies that are given off by the decay. So um, in this sense, radioisotopes have a lot in common, but there's also a lot that's different among the class of radioisotopes.
1: Great. Thank you so much. So by the 1930s, scientists and doctors were both using radioisotopes as a source of radiation, for example, in cancer therapy, and we'll talk a little bit about that over the course of our conversation, and as molecular tracers, and we'll also talk about um, the emergence of that. The book itself emphasizes developments between about 1945 and 1965. And this is a period where artificial radioisotopes are first put into wide circulation and wide use. So one of the big questions that comes up early in the book and that the subsequent chapters trace in really interesting and complex ways is the relationship between what we typically understand to be Two different realms, right? Civilian and military mm-hmm. science and uses of technology. So, um, because this comes up early up, can, let's start. Or it, it comes up early on, rather. Let's start um, right at the beginning, perhaps. By talking a little bit about that, can you situate what you're doing here within kind of a a larger field of work that talks about the relationship between science and the military in this period? And I know we could talk for probably two hours about that, but just um, briefly, how does the kind of work that you're trying to do with the book here maybe differ from um, other predominant approaches to understanding this relationship in this period?
0: This is a really good question, and it's a question I thought a lot about. The predominant narrative in history of science about the relationship of civilian science to the military has to do with physics and engineering, um, both chemical warfare, and I mean in the United States, I should say, chemical warfare in World War I, uh, which obviously relied very heavily on chemists, and the development of the radar and the atomic bomb in World War II, which was heavily reliant on physicists. And because physical scientists and engineers continued to be very important to weapons systems, um, above all, nuclear weapons in the post-war period, we often think of the militarization of science as something that is exemplified by the physical sciences. So part of what I'm trying to do is to bring biology and medicine into the picture and say that part of the legacy of the expansion of the military and the expansion of the use of science and technology by the military um, and the kind of aftermath of these technologies really includes biology and medicine. Um, But I'm also trying to say that the conventional narrative that the militarization of science is always a bad thing is a bit simplistic because some of the consequences of atomic energy for biology and medicine are things that we tend to think of as very beneficial, uh, namely the elucidation of metabolic pathways, molecular biology, um, and also nuclear medicine. So the other thing is that one might think that the story of radioisotopes, artificial radioisotopes, uh, is an example of how something that wasn't military became military. Because there were these cyclotrons that weren't being used by the military. And at the beginning of World War II, as American scientists became mobilized, they became part of the, um, eventually what became the Manhattan Project, they became part of the war effort. So in that sense, Uh, the ability to produce artificial radioisotopes was kind of brought under the sphere of the U.S. Army and the Manhattan Project. And that that connection remained there because atomic energy remained important to nuclear weapons. However, the particular effort on making radioisotopes available to scientists and uh, clinicians was specifically aimed to try to free the atom from the military, scientists who saw the power of atomic energy for military use during World War II were really anxious that it not be restricted to military control and military application. And in that sense, What we see is that the cyclotrons went from being non-military to militarized, but artificial radioisotopes, although they were kind of began to be produced in this military context, were partially disentangled from military control and that the Atomic Energy Commission, that's the successor to the Manhattan Project, their program for distributing radioisotopes was specifically to promote civilian benefits of this technology and not have it be only military. So... um, The story I'm trying to tell in that sense really is complex, both in terms of putting biology and medicine in the picture and also in terms of seeing that civilian and military, it's kind of an alternation um, and an entanglement and not just a question of one before the other.
1: Great. Now, you just mentioned psychotrons um, a few times, and this actually really, I think, nicely gets us into the first uh, body chapter of the book. Cyclotrons after the kind of introduction, which was tracers. Now, the book is separated into roughly two parts. So the first half of it, which we'll talk about now, traces the establishment of a system for producing and then for consuming and distributing radioisotopes. And the cyclotron is really crucial to that early stage of this process. So chapter two follows the circulation of radioisotopes in and around the cyclotrons of E.O. Lawrence. So, can you um, start us off in understanding this by talking a little bit about who is E.O. Lawrence? What are these cyclotrons? And what do we need to understand about what's happening there to understand what's happening in this early part of the story?
0: Right. So, um, Ernest O. Lawrence was a physicist who uh, made his career at University of California, Berkeley, and he and one of his graduate students. Uh, Stanley Livingston, invented something they called the proton merry-go-round, which was a little circular device that accelerated protons so that they could be shot at targets. And this was, you know, what began as this very simple little device grew and grew until it became, by the post-war period, these huge particle accelerators. And cyclotron was the term that was coined after proton merry-go-round to describe these machines. And Ernest Lawrence had a whole program for building. You know, bigger and better cyclotrons and doing what we would now call nuclear physics, finding out what happens when particles bombard each other, when they bombard target materials, um, finding out, you know, what kinds of elements could be generated. Many new elements were being discovered in this time period using accelerators. Uh, But he wasn't only attuned to the consequences of this for physics. But as soon as he realized that cyclotron could be used to make artificial radioisotopes, he realized that that would also have biological and medical applications. The reason he realized this is that already some natural um, radioisotopes were being used in medicine and above all, radium-226. And so um, the kinds of artificial radioisotopes that could be generated using the cyclotrons had the potential to supplement radium in medical therapy and potentially also be much less expensive because radium was extremely expensive. Um, It was being used both in industry and in clinical application. So um, he already, by 1934-35, was touting the potential medical benefits of things like radio sodium, And his brother, who happened to be a doctor, joined him. He moved from Yale, where he was an assistant professor, to Berkeley to become part of Lawrence's laboratory and begin to do the kind of experiments that were necessary to see if these artificial radioisotopes had medical applications.
1: Great. Now, this is also fun. It wasn't just a matter of um, work. And one of the wonderful (laughs) things in this chapter is a description of Lawrence and his colleagues um, demonstrating the power of radioisotopes using a kind of vaudeville. Um, So that's a great uh, moment in the chapter. And I'll just kind of hang that there as a teaser for listeners to go out and get the book and read chapter two, because there's this great account of radio vaudeville. Um, So after... Um, this sort of a story of the initial emergence of Lawrence and his cyclotrons, wartime mobilization kind of starts becoming an important factor here. How does the militarization of what's happening um, regarding and surrounding the cyclotrons impact what's happening for Lawrence and the work uh, that results with radioisotopes? Yes, it impacts it, I'd say, in three
0: really important ways. One is that, as I mentioned, there were already beginning to be a lot of explorations of the biomedical and um, you know therapeutic uses of radioisotopes. Uh, but that accelerated because with the beginning of the Manhattan Project, it was realized that um, workers in various facilities across the country, especially once the country began you know once the government began producing plutonium would be exposed to a whole set of new radio elements the physiological effects just weren't known so there was a um Berkeley was one of the places in which many animal experiments were done to try to determine the metabolism and toxicity of a lot of new materials, uh, such as plutonium, but also related to plutonium, plutonium uh, byproducts from its radioactive decay. So the human experimentation, which is all, had always had a medical focus, began to take on these uh, you know, questions of really military application. Um, a second way... Is that uh, a lot of the work was classified. And so, what had been completely open in terms of the results coming out of cyclotron research uh, began, you know, some of that work began to be classified. And this is not only true of the physics side, but the biomedical side too. Um, I mean, most of these uh, studies of fission products and animals were published in the open literature, but there were studies that began of um, plutonium and uranium in human subjects. Very small number of human subjects, but terminal patients would be injected with tiny amounts of plutonium to find out how their bodies responded to that, how they went through uh, their systems, how rapidly they were excreted, whether they had long-term effects. Well, I mean, for patients that were dying, you couldn't get very long-term effects. But those studies were top secret. A third way in which Lawrence's work was affected by the militarization was simply scale. So already Lawrence had a pretty big outfit at Berkeley and he was um, getting support from a number of different um, supporters. I mean, he, would, he got a huge magnet from a telegraph company. He was getting a lot of funding from the Rockefeller Foundation as well as from the University of California. Uh, but the infusion of military funds and personnel expanded the operation immensely and led to the construction of bigger cyclotrons, especially um, a cyclotron that was 184 inches and was the kind of the diameter of the smallest part. And because there wasn't even room on the Berkeley campus for this expansion, this led the establishment of a large uh, laboratory up the hill, overlooking the campus and overlooking the bay, and that's the origins of the current Lawrence Berkeley Labs, which is still part of the national lab system.
1: Great, thank you so much. And this is also um, sort of mentioning human subjects research reminds me that reading through the book, it also feels in some way that in in the best possible way that we're also reading a kind of shadow history of human experimentation in this context so that's um a really really interesting part of this story that i'm sure we're going to come back to So as we move to the next chapter, we move from cyclotrons to looking at reactors. At the end of World War II, the Manhattan Project leaders set the stage for the mass production of radioisotopes by the government in peacetime. Now this chapter really carefully considers the launching of this wide radioisotope distribution and the efforts of the government to control PR, public relations, among these early shipments. The first large-scale reactors were built to supply plutonium for the Manhattan Project. And in this context, um, you talk about the building of a large reactor in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Now, this becomes really interesting because you're showing in this chapter how The Oak Ridge reactor is both producing radioisotopes for civilian use and is at the same time producing materials for warfare experiments and other kinds of classified military research. So can you talk about that a little bit? What's going on at Oak Ridge and um, how is this simultaneous work on civilian and military use of radioisotope technology um, shaping what's happening in this part of the story?
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I also want to say that one of the things that I try to do in my book is to show how important Oak Ridge was to the Manhattan Project and to the kind of post-war nuclear efforts, because so much of the literature and the public focuses on Los Alamos. And obviously Los Alamos was important, but there were people beyond theoretical physicists who made really critical contributions. And Oak Ridge was significant not only because of the reactor that I mentioned, but because there were these three different isotope separation plants there that um, made made it possible to get enough plutonium producing uranium um, for, you know, the whole operation to work. So, Um, especially early on. So this reactor that was so significant for making radioisotopes was initially built as a pilot plant For a set of really huge reactors that were built in Hanford, Washington, and those are the reactors that made most of the plutonium in the early post-war period, including for the bomb that was exploded over Hiroshima. Later, another set of reactors was built in Savannah, Georgia, so there were these two huge reservations with these massive reactors. So Oak Ridge was a pilot plant for that, and It was a step up from the very first reactor, which was basically a temporary reactor that was built by um, Fermi and others at Chicago at Stagg Field under the bleachers on the field, and they showed that you could get uranium to go critical given the right apparatus, and that you could control it through um, neutrons uh, through or you could control the neutron flux through through rods, so. And Oak Ridge, the reactor that was built was called a graphite reactor because neutrons were moderated by graphite. In the end, the reactors that were built at Hanford were not graphite moderated, but water moderated. So it wasn't an exact an exact prototype, but it still allowed the people who were designing reactors to figure out a lot that they needed to um, you know to know about uh, the larger. Uh, huge reactors they'd be building. Um, at the same time, after the reactors in Hanford got going, the reactor in Oak Ridge wasn't really needed for making plutonium. It made some of the earlier plutonium that was important for the for the war effort and for the Manhattan Project. But most of the plutonium that went into um, the early bombs was was made at Hanford. And this meant that the Oak Ridge reactor was free for other uses. And so already during the war, um, when there were special radioactive materials that were needed for various, you know, parts of the Manhattan Project, the Oak Ridge reactor was often the, you know, device used to manufacture those. And in this sense, making artificial radioisotopes was just an extension of what was already going on during the Manhattan Project. It's just that the final users for these artificial radioisotopes in the postwar period would not only be people who were working for the Manhattan Project, but civilians. These were called off-project users. So in that sense, there was this progression from something that was built as a pilot plant to a kind of special production site to being a civilian production site. But even while it was a civilian production site, it continued to be used also to irradiate materials for um, military applications as well. So it was this kind of mixed-use reactor. And it was shut down in 1963. It was already pretty obsolete by the 1950s. Um, But it had a really important place in the the history because it was basically the first permanent reactor built.
1: Great. So Angela, in this context, um, in this part of the uh, book, you also talk about the establishment of the Atomic Energy Commission, a civilian body, and this be- winds up becoming really important for um, the development of the story to come. So can you talk about that a little bit in this context so that we can set the stage for understanding what happens next?
0: Oh, I'd be really happy to, and I should say that early on when I was working on this project, I don't think I fully appreciated how long the Manhattan District, the Manhattan Engineering District, who also which also went by the name of Manhattan Project, um, maintained control over all things atomic, because the Atomic Energy Commission didn't actually come into existence until January 1st, 1947. So there was over a year um, after the end of World War II before this new agency came into existence. And it basically was the rebirth of the Manhattan Engineering District, but in civilian clothes, and, you know, mostly civilian clothes. And this was a very interesting choice because originally the legislation that was going to set up the post-war Atomic Energy Agency put it in the hands of the military. It had been in the hands of the military during the war, after all. And even Oppenheimer strongly supported this way of of setting things up. However, a lot of scientists, especially uh, scientists at the uh, Chicago Met Lab, Metallurgical Lab, um, began lobbying the government vociferously that this should be a civilian agency and that it should ensure that the benefits of atomic energy would be for the American people and not only for national security, I mean, not only through national security. And in the end, and quite remarkably, these scientists were politically effective. And one of the reasons that the AEC took so long to come into existence is that it took a long time for Congress um, to vote, the bill into existence because this was such a contentious issue it was you know military versus civilian control um, but remarkably enough at the very beginning of the cold war um, congress voted to have a civilian agency control nuclear weapons and the development of atomic energy um, and this also meant that this agency had to show that there were actually benefits be- and this was actually a challenge and not just an opportunity, especially because early on it was understood that atomic energy could be used to generate power. Uh, and to this day, we you know we know the nuclear power industry is is, is a real you know is is a reality. But in the nineteen forties, the reactors that were being made weren't uh, economically competitive to supply power in the American context. And in this sense, you, um, the head of the Atomic Energy Commission, David Lilienthal, who had formerly headed the Tennessee Valley Authority, so he knew about kind of big-scale, you know, public utilities and operations, um, he realized atomic energy wasn't around the corner. And the only other obvious benefit from the infrastructure that w- that was left over from the Manhattan Project were artificial radioisotopes. And so there had already been a plan from during World War II, the same scientists that had advocated for the civilian control of atomic energy had also added advocated with um, Leslie Groves to set up a radioisotope production and distribution facility based in Oak Ridge. And so that already was launched by the Manhattan Project even before the Atomic Energy Commission was set up. Uh, The AEC inherited it and expanded it. And um, Lilienthal, for the first few years, really looked to that as evidence that this new agency could produce public benefits, that it wasn't just supplying the military with nuclear weapons, because at the same time, the AEC was the manufacturing body for the growing arsenal of nuclear weapons.
1: Right. Now, the AEC actually faced uh, controversies in its early years, and the fourth chapter looks at this and looks at this in the context of the broader issue of the ways that radioisotopes were used as political instruments. So the major set of debates that this uh, fourth chapter looks at in this context are debates about whether radioisotopes should be shipped to foreign scientists. So can you talk a little bit about that? Why was that such an important issue, and how did that play out um, in a way that we need to understand here to understand what comes next in the story?
0: Yes, I was really um, kind of taken aback by this controversy, because in retrospect, it's rather hard to understand. But um, at the end of World War II, there were a number of American um, politicians, especially on the right, who worried that making radioisotopes available outside the borders of the U.S. might accelerate um, the acquisition of nuclear weapons by other nations. And Um, I mean, in this sense, radioisotopes were sometimes conflated with nuclear technologies generally. And I should make clear that um, fissionable elements are radioactive isotopes, like uranium-238 or plutonium-239. But... Uh, the U.S. government was never going to make those available to civilians, you know, even within the United States, but certainly not outside the United States. Um, so all of the radioisotopes that were being manufactured and, and made available to civilians and being sold to civilians, I mean, I want to make sure that people understand, it's not that the government was giving them to the public, but was actually selling them at a very subsidized price. But this was a uh, commercial operation. Uh, but these radioisotopes... Um, were in high demand, and there were many foreign scientists who wanted to be able to obtain them, especially because the scientific infrastructure in Europe uh, had been so destroyed by the end of World War II. Many European scientists had contributed the knowledge of nuclear physics that had led to the production of artificial radioisotopes, and yet they themselves couldn't get their hands on these materials to use them in their research. And so the AEC was really at a juncture, because on the one hand, the national security pressures uh, would press the agency to restrict access to these materials. At the same time, President Truman was advocating the Marshall Plan, which used sharing of materials and, and economic benefits in order to build strategic alliances after World War II, and in particular, to try to make sure that the U.S. was providing economic assistance rather than the Soviet Union in the early Cold War. And so the question was whether radioisotopes were going to fit into the first agenda or the second agenda. And in the end, Lilienthal really expended a lot of his um, political capital to uh, argue that radioisotopes should be shared. And he himself really kind of went through a process of evolution and coming to his own Uh, view that these radioisotopes should be shared with foreigners. Um, And the program was rolled out under Truman. The export program was rolled out in the fall of 1947, about, you know, nine months um, after um, others were getting, after the AEC had been founded. Actually, I think it's 46. No, it's 47 for sure. But, um, But after domestic users could purchase them. But there were still um, many who disapproved of this policy, and one of the people who disapproved most strongly was himself, a commissioner in the AEC. The AEC had a rather unusual structure. Instead of having one agency director and subordinates, there was a chair of the commission, but there were five ruling directors, and they did everything by vote. And most of the time when they voted on things, there was unanimity. But on certain issues, they were divided. And the um, export of radioisotopes was one of the issues that divided the commissioners early on. A commissioner named Louis Strauss, who is kind of a famous Republican businessman and um, former admiral, uh, was strongly opposed to sharing radioisotopes um, with countries that might be unfriendly to the U.S., uh, and in which, in cases in which we couldn't guarantee they were just being used for humanitarian purposes. And so he was able to get one of his assistants to scour the records of the AEC and to find every example of a radioisotope shipment that might be suspect. And he found an example of a shipment of radio iron to a military establishment in Norway. And it's not that Norway was behind the Iron Curtain, but this was clearly something that was being used not for medicine, but for military research. And Strauss and his friends who were in Congress uh, used this against the AEC in the investigative hearings against the agency in the summer of 1949. And there's a very famous standoff between J. Robert Oppenheimer and Bork Hickenlooper about this very issue in which Hickenlooper was pressing Oppenheimer over whether other countries could use radioisotopes to advance the development of nuclear weaponry, and Oppenheimer uh, was was really rather flip um, in ways that came to haunt him later in saying, "Well, you can use a shovel or a bottle of beer to advance, uh, you know, the building of nuclear weapons elsewhere." Radioisotopes are in that same category, um, so the agency paid a price politically for its decision to share radioisotopes with foreigners, but at the same time. Um, By the time they were sharing them, it was clear that other national atomic energy installations would also begin selling radioisotopes to these countries. So it was kind of a closing window, and the U.S. government decided it was much better to uh, be part of the worldwide supply of radioactive isotopes rather than to be shut out of it in terms of its uh, global politics and diplomacy. So um, David Lilienthal ended up resigning as chair of the commission after these investigative hearings. And it's not just over radioisotopes. There were many other issues uh, that dogged him during his uh, leadership of the AEC as well. But given how relatively innocuous most people now would regard these radioisotopes, it's very striking um, how politicized they were at this time. Great. Thank you
1: so much, Angela. Now, as we move from that chapter to the next chapter in the next um, couple of discussions in the book, we move from a national body to an individual human body. And we move to looking at an apparent paradox. So on the one hand, um, in this period, the U.S. government is presenting a positive image of the benefits of atomic energy for the health of its citizens. And there's this fabulous figure on page 144 of the book. So um, I just want to direct listeners to that when they get their own copies of a man rising from a wheelchair in the midst of an atomic cloud. And this is an image from um, an issue in 1947 at Collier's. It's just this beautiful visualization of, or this very powerful, rather... A visualization of the connection between um, atomic technology and individual human health. So, this is happening. Um, this this sort of one part of this paradox in a context in the 1940s and 1950s where the AEC is trying to use atomic energy for humanitarian purposes. And you talk specifically in this part of the chapter about its use for cancer research and therapy. So can you talk a little bit about that? And then we'll look at then what's happening at the same time, which is sort of um, a a not super positive uh, way of understanding the effects of atomic energy on bodies.
0: Yes, Absolutely. Well, the, um, the U.S. government and the agency, like E.O. Lawrence had been in the 1930s, was very attuned to the possible medical upsides of having artificial radioisotopes available. and. Um, in that sense, they kind of took the playbook of John Lawrence and E.O. Lawrence to the public realm, and they did so at a time when the American Cancer Society was raising lots of money for cancer research and cancer therapies, um, and in which there was a sense of uh, real hope and expectation about the power of science and technology to solve big problems. This is right after science and technology had been seen as being very critical to winning World War II, and the mobilization in particular had involved kind of bringing scientists into these big operations in which there was a lot of collaboration and teamwork to jointly solve a problem. And cancer was seen as potentially like that. We've conquered the axis powers. Maybe we can now conquer uh, cancer itself. So um, in that sense, it was very timely for the AEC to get in on the cancer game, even though it was a little tricky as an atomic energy agency for them to set up a whole cancer program. They didn't really have the expertise and they ended up setting up a whole arm of the agency, the Advisory Committee on Biology and Medicine, to give them the expertise they needed. Um, But the other thing is that the hope that artificial radioisotopes would be kind of magic bullets to cure cancer never materialized. This has been a hope that traced back to early in the 20th century. But in fact... Um, most radioisotopes don't localize sufficiently in the human body to be able to irradiate, precise, you know, precisely irradiate tumors without also damaging other tissues. And that had been the great hope with radioisotopes is instead of blasting the body with an external radiation source, you could give a patient a cocktail of a particular radioisotope and it would go specifically to their tumor and irradiate it from within. And one of the reasons that this hope lasted for so long is that there is one artificial radioisotope that localizes very precisely in the body, and that's radioiodine, which localizes to the thyroid. And there were some cases in which people seemed to be cured of thyroid cancer by being treated with radioiodine, Um, and even to this day, radioiodine is used therapeutically, um, not just for thyroid cancers. I mean, it doesn't help all thyroid cancers, but it does help some, but also for um, Graves' disease and hyperthyroidism, uh, often radioiodine is still used to ablate the thyroid. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, That success, I think, led to an expectation that other artificial radioisotopes would localize to other organs or be able to be used in particular ways or maybe coupled to molecules to localize, and that just didn't pan out. So um, in that sense, the the AEC ended up emphasizing other potential benefits, but not so much cancer therapy. So they emphasized, uh, not internal therapy anyway, they emphasized uh, cobalt-60, which was really important, in external therapy to replace radium, and they emphasized the use of radioisotopes in diagnostics. But it wasn't true that every different radioisotope could be used to kill a different kind of human cancer.
1: Great. Thank you so much. And as we move to the second part of the book, and we'll do that momentarily, um, a lot of those chapters actually look at specific uses of specific radioisotopes in a really interesting and really focused way. Now, before we get there, though, I'll just mention, and I won't ask you to talk too much about it, because I'm going to ask you to talk a whole lot about material in the second half of the book in the time we have. But I'll mention that these (laughs) other Another part of this paradox is that at the same time the government is presenting this positive, hopeful image of the benefits of atomic energy. At the same time, after World War II, the really devastating effects of nuclear weapons are being made clear in accounts of Japanese cities targeted by atomic bombs. And related to that, there's a changing perception that you talk about in this chapter of radiation's hazards. So at this time, occupational hazards associated with radiation were understood largely in terms of, I think as you put it in the book, acute effects Triggered by relatively high doses. But over the nineteen fifties this changes as concerns about long term effects of radiation start to emerge in popular perceptions of radioactivity. And this is happening in the context of both documentation of leukemia among Japanese survivors of atomic blasts and also increased concerns over the sort of the effects of atomic testing at bikini. And elsewhere. So the chapter really goes into, in really, uh, really, really fascinating detail, these changing perceptions and this kind of coexistence of this apparently paradoxical approach toward um, radiation and its effects and uses um, within and uh, without the human body. After this, there's a chapter that we're going to kind of breeze over so that we can get to the case studies in the second book, but I'll just mention for listeners, there's a chapter that looks at the relationship between the U.S. government and industry in developing civilian uses for atomic energy. And you talked a little bit about this earlier on when talking about the um, U.S. government and its attempts to turn radioisotopes into commodities. So I just want to point um, this out for listeners because, there's a, again, just as there's a really interesting kind of parallel history of human experimentation here, there's also a really interesting history of the emergence of different kinds of markets um, that travel, that we can sort of see the chapters tracing, um, no pun intended, in a really, I think, interesting way for market historians. Okay, so this brings us, this is a really uh, quick blitz through um, the the remaining parts of the first half of the book, and it brings us to the second half of the book. The second half of the book focuses on some representative users of and uses of radioisotope technology, and it specifically looks at applications of radioisotopes to biochemistry and molecular bio, to medicine, and to ecology, and this is super, super fascinating. So I want to ask you all about a whole bunch of stuff here. So let's talk about Chapter 7, Pathways. This focuses on the use of radioisotopes by biochemists and molecular biologists, and it uses two case studies to look at how these radioisotopes were used to understand and really to kind of change the way scientists understood and conceptualized molecular transformations over time. Now, one of the case studies you talk about is a case study by Berkeley researchers at the Radiation Lab in the 1940s in the 1950s who are trying to understand photosynthesis. And this seems really crucial because we see here the emergence of carbon-14, um, which is really, really important for lots of different kinds of scientists right now. So can you, um, if you, if you wouldn't mind, talk about this case study? What's happening at this part of the story, and how does understanding what's going on at this radiation lab help us understand the larger transform- transformative points that you're making in this part of the book?
0: Yes, I um, love the material in this chapter. My own background is in biochemistry, and this was kind of the success story that I knew before ever deciding to write a book on radioisotopes. And um, the use of carbon-14 to crack open the photosynthetic pathway, which is, you know, universal and critical in plants, is one of the great success stories in the book, and um, Its connections back to the Manhattan Project are stronger than some of the other uses of radioisotopes in metabolic biochemistry. So carbon-14 was actually discovered by Martin Kamen and Sam Rubin. Um, while they were working as part of the Manhattan Project. And they began to use not only carbon-14, but another short-lived radioisotope of carbon, carbon carbon-11, in the early 1940s to look at uh, photosynthesis and also to look at some other metabolic pathways in, in microbes. So they really understood that being able to tag an individual carbon compound and follow that label through a cell as it undergoes chemical transformations would be an amazing way to see how the cell you know, manufactures different metabolic substances that it needs. And and what are the specific chemical reactions involved in those transformations? But because of world war two and the press of war work, they weren't able to follow this up. And tragically, Sam Rubin, who was a brilliant radio chemist, uh, died in a phosgene accident uh, while in the RAD lab at Berkeley. And Martin Kamen lost his security clearance because of the kind of musicians that, I mean, there was a lot of reasons. But he wasn't a communist, but he hung out with a bunch of musicians, including a lot of Russian musicians. Um, And in the end, uh, because he was trying to broker... The connection between the RAD lab and a Russian consular official who wanted to get some radiophosphorus to treat a colleague who had cancer, that connection with that Russian official was used against Cayman, and he was fired. Mm-hmm. So they discovered this radiocarbon, and they weren't able to use it, and Lawrence knew how important this was. Now, the thing about... Carbon 14 is that it's incredibly important for biological research, but unlike some of the other radioisotopes, it's not really used in therapy. I mean, because it would, you know, tag, it would go into every cell in your body. Carbon is absolutely ubiquitous. So, this was strictly a research use, and Melvin Calvin was a chemist who had worked in, you know, in the war work and got to know Lawrence in that context, and according to his autobiography, Lawrence basically said to him at the end of World War II, why don't you work with me and let's do something useful with atomic energy uh, after the war, and he persuaded Melvin Calvin to pick up the uses of radiocarbon to elucidate the photosynthetic pathway. And Calvin did that really brilliantly over the course of, you know, the 1940s to the 1960s. Um, And originally he had access to radiocarbon that was still in the hands of – Sam Rubin's student, Andrew Benson, but then he was also one of the first people to get carbon-14 from Oak Ridge when it began to be produced there and sold. Um, And he was inside the Manhattan Project infrastructure, basically, by virtue of being in Lawrence's lab. So uh, he had really tremendous access to uh, the know-how as well as the materials in order to do the project. And he devised this really brilliant way of doing it by... um, growing up algae with radiocarbon and then splitting them open and following the radio-labeled materials of the cell onto paper and then seeing how the spots that were labeled on the paper moved around in order to deduce the photosynthetic pathway. So this was a tremendous triumph already by the late 1940s. um, He'd been able to elucidate many of the steps, and the AEC would always roll this out. It's not only the contribution to science, but potentially the contribution to agriculture on the idea that somehow knowing photosynthesis might help us produce more food.
1: Now, this becomes really crucial because this, we see here in this chapter how the supply of radioisotopes from the AEC actually shapes the kinds of questions that are being asked by the scientists. And you demonstrate here the ways that it reinforces a kind of preoccupation with processes and pathways. It develops a new focus on tracing And this really establishes radio labeling as a key technique. So this is really, really crucial for the whole history of the life sciences and the way bodies and processes are understood beyond um, even the history of radioisotopes. So it's a really transformative moment in the book and in this history. As we move to the next chapter, you move us to look at similarly transformative moments in other kinds of bodies, and Chapter 8 looks specifically at biomedical research in human subjects. Now, there's so much going on in this chapter that, we, again, we could talk for probably two hours about these case studies because they're so interesting, but I'll ask you just um, to introduce maybe one, um, one or both of them very briefly. So one of the examples looks at the use of Um, Or the study, rather, of iron metabolism in pregnant women at Vanderbilt University Medical School in the mid 1940s. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening in that context and how that's? What do we need to understand about that? That's important for understanding um, this moment of transformation of the use of biomedical. uh, biomedical researchers, uh, w- or the work of biomedical researchers with radioisotopes and humans. Yeah, and this is um, an
0: episode that's well known because many bioethicists and people who. Um, have been critical of the government's role in radiation, have pointed to this episode, this use of pregnant women as human subjects, as an example of uh, what, what went wrong with uh, with the government's involvement in general with human experimentation. And I certainly don't deny any of that at all. And in fact, I should say that initially when I set out to write the book, I did not want to touch human experimentation. It's so ethically charged. It's so messy. It's so gross. <laughs> I don't do history and <laughs> medicine and this is why I never went to medical school in the first place. Um, and it was Dan Kevlas in a conversation over 10 years ago who said you really have to deal with human research as well as research in animals and plants and microbes um, because obviously all of that, you know, radioisotopes were going into all of these subjects and you need to help us understand how it was that humans were part of the ex- repertoire of experimental subjects for radioisotopes. So what I do in dealing with the pregnant women who were given these small amounts but still potentially not so safe amounts of radio iron to uh, try to understand anemia in pregnant women is that I look at how that particular experiment at Vanderbilt in their prenatal clinic uh, related to earlier experiments that had happened at University of Rochester in dogs, and including in some pregnant dogs, Some and I uncovered some experiments that had never been published uh, on some pregnant dogs that might have given the researchers uh, a little bit more caution about um the pregnant women um, at this time, it was thought that the placenta was such a strong barrier that it really sealed off the fetus and the baby from the outside world, and this is part of why in the 1940s and 50s people weren't concerned if pregnant women smoke or drank or whatever. It was really thought that the placenta gave the um, developing fetus tremendous. Um, Protection from any possible uh, contaminants or uh, po- or, um, or dangers that were uh, in the mother's environment and even in her body, and tragically, this experiment with radioiron and pregnant women was one of the experiments that began to challenge that belief. Um, now, it's still not entirely clear. Um, what the consequences of the experiment were but uh, because at the time only the women were being studied because the whole point was not to look at the children but to look at the effects of iron in the bodies of pregnant women Um, because we wanted, you know, those doctors wanted to understand anemia Um, but about 15 years later as scientists understood that very low levels, even very low levels of radiation, could promote damage, and that developing fetuses might be more sensitive to radiation than grown-ups, uh, researchers at Vanderbilt went back and contacted all of the women who had been in this study to find out how their children, um, you know, have, uh, how their children had done. Uh, and it turned out, you know, the numbers were not there; wasn't a huge statistical difference between the control group, the women who hadn't had the radio iron, and the women who had, but three of the women who had had the radio iron had had children that had died of childhood cancer. And none of the women in the control group had now these are really small numbers and there's still some debate about whether that represents true statistical significance but in the original paper the person who did the study said this is a significant you know significant difference and this was part of what changed ideas about the susceptibility of um, of humans in utero to radiation even low levels of radiation uh, but it was you know certainly not on the minds of the scientists who designed the experiment in 1945 46 47 and, and tragically so Um, And this, you know, there was a lawsuit of the women against uh, the doctors and against the organizations that had funded the study. Uh, And it remains to this day one of the examples of the potential abuse um, by the government and by researchers of human subjects, because many of these women were not necessarily well informed that they were consuming a radioisotope. So, um, I mean, it's a very negative story. But I also try to explain kind of why it happened. And the other piece that I think is really ironic and important to understand is that the government at this point in time did not have a, an apparatus for overseeing human subjects research, especially in the realm of medicine. The idea was that uh, medical professionals, you know, doctors, they self-regulate. That's part of their professional ethic is to keep the um, well-being of their patients foremost. And it really wasn't until the post-war period with the onset of a lot of large-scale medical research that people began to consider that there might be a conflict of interest within the doctor, that the doctor might simultaneously be interested in treating the patient, but also really want to know the results of a particular kind of experiment, and that there might be instances in which the doctor would perform an experiment at the expense of the well-being of a patient. So, and this is part of why bioethics as a field emerged in the 1960s, and part of why an infrastructure... Within the government and also in hospitals for overseeing human subjects research emerged. Um, but at the time that I'm writing about, that didn't exist. Moreover, the Atomic Energy Commission, although they did understand the idea of informed consent, was really only concerned with regulating research that it directly supported financially. So, research in its national laboratories or in a few laboratories where they were doing medical research. But when they sold radioisotopes to um, civilians, including to doctors, they assumed that the liability for the uses of those radioisotopes uh, really went to the doctors themselves, and really the the government was not liable for that. So ironically enough, the government was more careful in overseeing top-secret experiments in which people were, you know, being given, um, you know, fissionable elements than kind of ordinary people in civilian clinics. Right. I mean, and
1: and this... A set of issues also plays out I think in this really, really beautiful example and case study that also um, closes up this chapter, which is the case study of the development of radio immunoassays, where you look at the clinical use of radioiodine in a Veterans Administration Hospital and the work of Rosalind Yellow, 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 mm-hmm. um, and yeah. Solomon Burson in developing what winds up being a really, really crucial technology and here we have not just, um, you mentioned dogs briefly, and I, I I have to tell you, my my heart strings pulled by this story of the mm-hmm. eagle that poor I man. know. But we have guinea pigs here also <laughs> in this chapter yes. being treated a little bit more nicely. Yes. We have some well stuff.
0: this is the irony actually is that the guinea pigs <laughs> are kind of the happy subjects in this story because they're only being used to produce antibodies. So they're being bled but not sacrificed. And in fact there's a picture of Rosalind Yallow cradling a guinea pig in her arm because she wants them to to produce the best antibodies possible. So, <laughs> right.
1: so there's also, um, so I'll mention just kind of briefly, there's also uh, a really interesting, as we've mentioned, kind of parallel history of animals um, being used in research here. And so there's a lot of examples of that now as we move to the, the um, later chapters of the book i won't we won't have time to talk about all of them um, but I just definitely want to mention them just to get them on the table for listeners so that they know they're there um, you mentioned earlier whole body scintillation scanners and chapter nine looks at those looks at the use of those in the context of a more comprehensive look at the emergence of nuclear medicine in the 1950s and 1960s and here we find the story of cobalt 60 radiation therapy and both therapeutic and also tracer uses of radioisotopes in the field of diagnostic medicine um, and the treatment of, uh, of, certain kinds of illnesses, including cancer. Chapter 10 then moves us to looking at another kind of body, and this is the body of an environment, the body of ecology. And here we have a really, really interesting part of the story that I don't want to let you go without asking you to talk a little bit about, because it's really fascinating for the history of ecology and the environment, as well as the history of radioisotopes. And this is um, sort of the use of radioisotopes to understand lakes and ecosystems in terms of metabolism. So do you want to talk a little bit here about what's happening, um, in terms of the understanding of radioisotopes in the context of environments, both, um, in the context of the metabolism of environments, and also perhaps in the context of the use of radioisotopes as kind of tr- or radioactive waste as kind of a tracer to look at the movement of radioactive materials through ecosystems, so you have tracing the body of an ecosystem in a couple of different ways um, in really really beautiful examples in this chapter.
0: Yes. And this chapter was so much fun to write. If the chapter on human experiments was the chapter I didn't want to write, uh, this chapter on ecosystems is a chapter I didn't even know was part of the story until I got into it. And I was so excited to see these connections. I was tipped off by someone who reviewed an NSF grant who said, you should take seriously the analogies between um, metabolic experiments by biochemists and radiotracer experiments by ecologists. And that um, advice was so... So true. Uh, I focus on G. Evelyn Hutchinson, who was a brilliant ecologist who spent most of his career at Yale University and a tremendous proponent of ecosystems ecology. He had done uh, important work in this area, and um, Ray Lindemann, who was really important to the articulation of ecosystems ecology, uh, had spent time with G. Evelyn Hutchinson. They really informed each other in 19 kind of uh, the early 1940s before Lindemann died tragically early after publishing this very important paper on trophic levels and ecosystems ecology that looked at an ecosystem in terms of the movement of materials and energy. Now I should mention that the term ecosystems was only coined in 1935. This was coined by Arthur G. Tansley who was a British ecologist because he didn't like the use of the term community to describe the relationships of organisms to each other both because that only paid attention to the living parts of a system. It didn't pay attention like to you know, the physical materials in a lake, for instance, and also because he thought that there was something um, very uh, idealist about trying to treat a group of organisms as a community when they don't like think about each other the way that humans think about each other in uh, a social environment. And so he said ecosystem, which, you know, really treats these as more elements of a system, even kind of a machine way was much better. And you could pay attention to the non-living components as well because obviously there are things that move between the non-living and living parts of ecosystems. Think about how, you know, food or sunlight moves. Um, and so this term had been introduced. Hutchinson picked it up. But interestingly... Hutchinson um, thought about radio, he thought about the movement of elements through ecosystems and realized that physiologists and biochemists were using radio elements to trace the movement of these materials through bodies and thought you could do that in an ecosystem as well. And by making that analogy, he actually resurrected that kind of holist, organismal metaphor that had so vexed Tansley. So it's one of the Ironies of this early moment in ecology. But even before the Manhattan Project um, began to produce and sell radioisotopes, Hutchinson was able to get small amounts of radio phosphorus from a cyclotronic gale. And take it out to a lake in Connecticut called Lindsley Lake and put it into the lake and follow the movement of that radio phosphorus through the different um, organisms and levels, you know, sedimentary levels of the lake. And um, he had his own kind of theory about how the phosphorus moved. Uh, and um, he saw this as a way to study the metabolism of the entire lake. And he was also interested in uh, looking at vitamins and other things in the lake as well that carried that metaphor forward. But the early experiments weren't very uh, decisive because the amounts of radioactivity weren't high enough. There, There wasn't enough specific activity. So he was one of the early purchasers once the materials became available from Oak Ridge. And he redid the experiment and got really compelling results and started a whole trend in ecology of using radioisotopes as tracers of the movement of materials through ecosystems. So especially, you know, elements like phosphorus or iron or whatever. Um, But at the same time that ecologists were putting artificial radioisotopes into ecosystems as a kind of a research tool, that was the same time at which the AEC was putting enormous amounts of radioactive waste into ecosystems not to study them but just to try to, you know, get rid of the waste. And the AEC understood that um, they needed to involve ecologists in trying to handle radioactive waste. And in fact, at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, one of the largest ecology groups in the country, was built up over the course of the 1950s precisely to do this. And what these ecologists discovered as they studied the radioactive waste disposal pits around Oak Ridge was that the, the um, engineers and physical scientists had thought that once you put the waste radioisotopes into these spaces, that they would be kind of bound by the soil and just stay there. But instead, the radioactive isotopes were picked up by living organisms and, and kind of recycled through the ecosystem. And so, in effect, radioactive waste enabled um, scientists to understand how environmental contamination occurs how things move through ecosystems, and in particular, and this happened more at Hanford, how ecosystems and food webs can concentrate certain elements and you know certain kinds, uh, and in and, and doing so, certain kinds of radioactivity, so that something that's very dilute in water might actually build up to a much more radioactive level when it gets to the top of the food chain, and that realization complicated the efforts of the AEC to develop good radioactive waste policies because they couldn't count on dilution in an environment to kind of disperse radioactivity.
1: Well, Angela, Angela, thank you thank so you much. So I've, much. Already I've already taken, taken um, a whole um, bunch, of your, bunch of your time, so I'll just so mention, I'll mention for, for, for listeners, for um, listeners. And, there may, um, and there who may be hearing. Oh, there you go. A little bit of echo. Now there, now it's gone. Um, but I'll just mention for listeners that there's also a really great concluding chapter, Half Lives, that assesses the long-term impact of radioisotopes that continue to be really important for scientific diagnosis um, or scientific investigation and medical diagnosis. But you talk about here a really important uh, switch since the completion of the Human Genome Project from kind of a looking at single changes to looking at systems and a concomitant shift in the way that radioisotopes are used, are used or not um, in scientific investigation and in medical diagnosis. So, Angela, uh, there's a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's an extraordinarily rich study built on a really humbling array of archival resources and a really amazing kind of research base. And so congratulations on that. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention um, or talk a little bit more about for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book?
0: Um, Yes, I think what I would say in conclusion, there were so many surprises as I did the research behind this book. I knew part of how radioisotopes had been used, but there was a lot that I didn't know. And I was especially amazed to find out how important radioisotopes have been and are in nuclear medicine. And as it turns out, um, in biology, many of the uses of radioisotopes have been replaced now with other kinds of labels, especially fluorescent labels. But in nuclear medicine, radioisotopes are not so easy to replace. And to this day, as a person goes, you know, is checked the the hospital, about 30% of people are likely to encounter some radiation source or radioisotope in the course of their diagnosis and treatment. So um, obviously, you know, radioactivity is... Uh, A dangerous substance and it has to be controlled but I think one of the things that doing research for the book made me appreciate is that um, when used in in very careful ways it's also very powerful especially for diagnosis and treatment so um, it was really interesting to find out how those possibilities were related back to the Manhattan Project.
1: So now that the book is out and congratulations again on the book what's next for you are there any projects that are currently inspiring you? Oh, yes. Um, In fact, I've begun
0: a project that looks at the growing um, awareness of, detection of, and regulation of environmental carcinogens in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And I became aware of this because, in fact, radioactivity was something of a model pollutant, especially in the ways that uh, ecologists could see how radioactivity moves through ecosystems and is concentrated in food webs. But there are a number of other Materials that got into environments in the 1960s that also had ways of concentrating in living organisms and moving through um, landscapes and food webs. And synthetic chemicals really fall into this category as well. And there was tremendous concern about synthetic chemicals causing uh, cancer. And, you know, to this day, this remains a very live concern. So um, there's a way in which it grows out of my book on radioisotopes, but I'll also be looking at the um, importance of environmentalism, of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and the growing um, kind of body of regulation of environmental substances uh, and how that interacted with uh, research and kind of um, technologies for detecting substances and the way in which, you know, we try to control exposure to things that might cause cancer.
1: Great. Well, congratulations again and best of luck in that research. And thanks so much for making the time, Angela. It really was a pleasure. Oh, thanks, Carla. It's really been thrilling to have a chance to talk about the book.